Hello and welcome to this Wealth Track podcast. I'm Consuelo Mack. I am delighted to be here with Nobel laureate economist, Yale professor, financial innovator, and prolific author Robert Schiller, whose latest book is Narrative Economics How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events. Bob, it's great to have you with us on Wealth Track. Pleasure for me, too. What is narrative economics? I coined the term narrative economics. It's the study of popular narratives that have driven major economic events in history. That is trying to figure out how people's thinking changes through time and recognizing that most people don't read economics books uh, or do charts or equations. They just tell stories and the stories carry with it a moral. We call those narratives. Uh, a story with a moral or an interpretation of events. And those stories change through time. I'm arguing in the book that we should be studying those changes if we want to understand better and want to forecast better. So why are stories so important? When I think of kind of traditional economics that I deal with, uh, market economics, for instance, on Wall Street, and we're, you know, we're looking at stuff like leading economic indicators, and we're looking at purchasing managers' indexes, and inflation figures and everything else. But in fact, you're saying that there's there's another dimension that is the human story right. of maybe how we res are responding. Well, those are important too. Mm -hmm. uh, the Purchasing Managers Index helps you forecast out a few months or six months or a year maybe. Uh, but beyond that, economists haven't shown any consistent ability to forecast changes in GDP or interest rates or the like. So we have to look at something different. Right. Economists view themselves as scientists and want to be precise and quantitative in their approaches, which is in itself useful. Uh, but we miss an ocean of uh, changes that are a little bit hard to pin down. We're human beings, after all. Mm -hmm. And we change our thinking about we suddenly realize that something is important that we didn't realize a while back. And it's maybe because of some great new story. So, uh, for example, Greta Thunberg, who is a 16-year-old Swedish girl who suddenly leapt into the national, international scene with her criticism of efforts that have successfully dealt with uh, global warming, mm -hmm. suddenly she's like a celebrity. That is how things move. Scientists have been complaining about global warming for many decades, <laughs> and uh, it doesn't get legs until it becomes part of a story. Right. So Greta Thunberg sailed across the Atlantic Ocean <laughs> in order to avoid polluting the atmosphere. Right. That's a story. Uh, and people who can, uh, can live stories like that tend to get abnormal attention. Suddenly, everyone is focused on this story. Right. So Greta Thunberg probably hinders uh, consumption expenditure, and it has macroeconomic effects. Precisely. Let's stick with climate change. How do you think that is influencing the direction of the economy? How do you see our reaction to that narrative uh, right. playing out? Well, the immediate thought is that a uh, climate narrative discourages consumption. Yes, because it just doesn't look right anymore to be polluting and uh, consuming limited resources. So that's 
the effect of it alone. But we have to remember that it's not the only narrative. So what are the narratives that, that you're watching uh, that are yeah. working in the economy today? Well, what comes to mind to first is a Trump narrative. Mm -hmm. It is astonishing how much attention he is able to garner using new tactics like tweeting, tweeting. Uh, a lot, tweeting a lot. Uh, and no former president has been like that. So we're in a, th this is the kind of surprise that comes up. He explains himself in his various books well, with co-authors, but they sound like uh, he, I don't know if he actually wrote them, but he worked with the co-author because it sounds right. like him. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he tells you to live a story, live large. And uh, people might resent it if you're boastful, but hey, they won't know about your success unless you tell them. So go ahead and do it. That's the success metric. This is a different narrative that works right. in the opposite direction from the one I just, from the climate narrative. Mm -hmm. uh, it encourages people to live large. And that means they still want those big houses and they still want designer clothes just because they think it's a success strategy. And they're worried, they hear about all this inequality, they worry about their position in society. And they think that, you know, the best thing to do is to, to look successful. And I'm going to do that. You wrote an editorial uh, in the New York Times that uh, that you were very concerned about the effect of uh, the track record of misleading statements or lies that uh, that Trump has uttered. The Washington Post and others have tracked these things. And you're saying that you know this country has a um, is known for having a culture of being honest. Explain how you're concerned about that that could change, that lying could be, in fact, admired and or that it doesn't matter. Let's not put it all on Donald Trump. No. Uh, uh, why not? I mean, honestly... I um, think he's modeled a success strategy. Uh-huh. Uh, and most people would have thought that you can't do it. Uh, you can't lie too often. Right. But uh, he has had the strategy of anything he's accused of, he accuses others of. Uh, so the term fake news, I thought originally was criticizing Trump <laughs> but, uh, or some of his uh, colleagues. Right. But, but now he, he turns it around. So it's the mainstream uh, media that are giving fake news. Mm -hmm. He just says that and it confuses everybody. Then everybody is lying. Uh, he's supposed, he's, by some accounts, he's lying. By other accounts, it's the newspapers and the TV right. shows. Uh, and so people just end up believing what they want to believe. I think that throws us off of uh, a, a, a real uh, sense of progress. I'm, I'm wondering to bring it back to economics. If you can't trust what other people are saying, what is the impact on business, for right. instance? Or So there are people who have analyzed actual data on trust from the uh, World Values Survey, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. surveys all the many countries in the world. And one, one question they ask is, I don't have the exact words, they ask this in many different countries, do you think that most people can be trusted or alternatively, you just can't be too careful with people? <laughs> uh, and it turns out that advanced and high income countries are more trusting. The, 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 the inference that many are making, and I think it's probably correct, is that the uh, trust helps the economy work better. If everyone's corrupt, you, you, 
you can't even start a business. You know, I mean, they'll rot, steal it from you one way or another. So right. Don't even bother. Of course, there is an, another interpretation that advanced economies inspire trust. So we don't know for sure. Or the rule of law might have a lot to do with it. Right. That there's a recourse to go to if somebody's dishonest or corrupt. Right. And but unfortunately, this is another question on the survey is, do you think that government uh, are general, I don't have the exact words, governments are, can be trusted. And that has been going down. The, the positive responses, yes, are going down for decades now. So uh, I think the, in the United States, there was a lot of respect for the government at the end of World War II. Yes. Because uh, people were really pulling together for a good cause. And uh, for decades afterwards, there, there was a general warm feeling about the government. Uh, then it started to erode. They, they allowed high taxes, by the way. People were willing to pay for a government that does good things. But it, it's been downhill for many years now. And I don't think that encourages good government either. Mm -hmm. If people expect you to lie and uh, cheat, then uh, you think it's, it's just a brawl and we have to do it too. To the, the narratives that are occurring now, for instance, in, in the economy or in the markets, they, so in the economy, you were one of the early uh, warners of the housing bubble in, I think, between 2001 and 2006. Mm -hmm. uh, you had <clears throat> written about it, talked about it, that there was a, a housing bubble, and that, that that became a narrative. And I remember, I guess, was it Ben Bernanke or Alan Greenspan saying that housing prices always go up or housing prices never well, go down or something. Thing. So talk <clears throat> about that was a narrative that had yeah. really uh, significant uh, impact on the economy. Yeah, I would rephrase it somewhat. I recently right. did a search for the phrase, housing prices always go up. And I found that it wasn't often stated in such terms. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the phrase was used more by critics of this thinking and it was more after the bubble that people thought they said that home prices always go up. But I don't find it in the news record much at all because it's kind of a bald statement. You know, it's, that's an ex sounds extreme. They always go up. They, so what were they saying? Well, I think that if you go back to the boom, housing boom years, they weren't saying anything about the long term. They weren't even looking at it. They were looking at stories of, of flippers. Well, they didn't call them flippers yet either. Of smart people who will buy two or three houses and sell them after making some cosmetic improvements. And they're smart. They know how to do that. They know interior decoration and the like. Those were the stories. It's like it was presented as a profit opportunity. And they allowed you to assume that they didn't even tie it so much to the housing boom. They just said, they give example of this person who made $100,000 in his spare time. Those stories people fell in love with. Most of them didn't become flippers of houses, but a lot of them upsized their aspirations. Mm -hmm. At least when I buy a house, I want to really get, I don't want to, I'm afraid of missing out. Right. And I don't want to, uh, but it, it wasn't a clear focus yet on, this, you only realize this when you go back and try to study this. But we were living a narrative that, that uh, <laughs> or, or it just seemed as if we all had 
friends or friends of friends who are who are flipping uh, right, condos, yeah, for right. instance, in Florida. And this is all anecdotal. And, and I guess that's why I want to ask you the difference between what's kind of anecdotal and speculative versus what when what how it becomes a narrative. So th- it was just happening all over the country that they suddenly became real estate investors as opposed to homeowners. Yeah, that's right. In fact, it's it's been a gradual uptrend. I look uh, back a hundred years in newspapers, uh, you know, using online mm-hmm. newspapers, and search for home prices. And if, if you go back 100 or 150 years, they would occasionally talk about home prices. The article would say something like this, Mr. Morgan bought a house and he paid $30,000 for it. Would you believe that? And they say, this, uh, it, it's a fine neighborhood and a uh, uh, beautiful house. And that was the story. Right. So uh, they didn't say anything about him profiting or expecting it to go up further. They just weren't into it. Now, they were more into land speculation. And if you stop someone, if you could go back in a time machine and ask about home speculation, I think, they, I, think I know what they might say. They'd say, it's better to speculate in land. It, land is of limited supply. The housing, they can always build more. And so I think that land speculation was a big, it was called the Florida land bubble, not the Florida Florida housing Housing bubble bubble. in the Mm -hmm. 1920s. You wrote an article, an opinion piece in the New York Times in late 2018, just noting that there was one of the greatest housing booms occurring in the U.S. than than you'd ever seen before. Where does that housing boom stand now? (laughs) Well, there was the housing boom that peaked in 2006, that led to the financial crisis, the Great Recession. We're on another housing boom that started in 2012 and is still going up, although it's slowing down from uh, around 2013, 2014, they were going up in double digit nationwide range. Now it's down to something like three or 4%. So that's a sign to me that it may be slow and it could turn down. In some places, it has turned down uh, into negative territory. But, but, but home prices have gotten high again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think some people are, are starting to be cautious. Are you concerned about the housing boom that, that you've described? Or you said it's slowing down, so is it just taking care of itself? Well, we are now in the longest expansion since 1857, right. according to the National Bureau of Economic Research. Uh, and so they all come to an end in some form of recession. I don't know exactly. We had s- sort of a false alarm scare. There was a lot of talk of the inverted yield curve as yes. a predictor. And now that's faded. We didn't so far have a, a evidence of a recession. But the sooner or later, there will be a recession. And uh, my concern is that it could be made into a worse recession by memories of the last uh, great, so-called Great Recession. And home prices could help uh, establish a connection if they start falling. I don't know when this will happen or if it will. But uh, the other side of it is that part of the narrative is that we recovered from the Great Recession <laughs> pretty much. Uh, we have the Trump narrative, uh, so we can reelect Trump and maybe he will do his magic. This is a narrative. I'm not right. promoting it. But, but what, it. Do you, what do you think about the chances of recession, where this record expansion is going or how vulnerable yeah. it is? Or, Again, it's hard to predict, but there are yeah. other narratives that flow. One of them is the trade war. And I think that that could give some flashpoints. 
that might uh, bring up uh, fears about the future that uh, could lead to a, a, a recession. We haven't had a trade war since the 1930s. Uh, and that trade war, by the way, was widely uh, given as a reason why the Great Depression, the Depression. Was, was so severe. Mm -hmm. I think they tended to exaggerate that story, but uh, who, it still plausibly uh, could reemerge as a reason to be afraid. I'm interested in the difference between a narrative and kind of conjecture or speculation. For instance, in the markets today, specifically the trade narrative, which in the markets, on a daily basis, if China and the United States seem to be close to an agreement, the market goes up. If, they, if the yeah. stocks seem to fall apart, the market goes down. Is trade really that important to I, I to think the that, markets? Yeah, the markets do fixate on things. Yes, right now that's kind of the, and that's, that's the risk on, risk off. If you're a day-to-day -day trader, you look at day-to-day -day movements, right? and those are tied into the news, but they're tied indirectly into the news because it's not the reality of the news that matters, it's what other investors think. If you think that other investors will uh, react negatively to some news, then you sell immediately uh, trying to beat them and then that, of course, makes it a self-fulfilling prophecy that any bad news of a certain sort that's attended to by the public uh, will become a negative on the market or a positive if it's good, considered good news. Uh, so it's kind of a um, crazy game we're playing with, <laughs> with the stock market. <laughs> but, but it has good consequences, too, though, that it, it, uh, it keeps people in, interested in investing, mm -hmm. at least. So I'm not, because of the so, stories, you mean it? Yeah, yeah. They, they, um, it, it, it's better than going to a gambling casino. Uh, and people would do that if they weren't allowed to dabble in the stock market. They would do that <laughs> even more. I never thought of the stock market in terms of that kind of a social good keeping us out of the gambling, <laughs> gambling casinos. But, well, let's talk about the stock market. Number one, you think it's a good thing that people invest in the stock market, right? right? And it's, a, it, it's also that... There, by thinking about the stock market, uh, they learn about the economy somewhat. Right. And uh, they're aware of uh, things, how they happen. And some of them will be entrepreneurs and start their own business. Mm -hmm. Their experience with uh, speculating in the market is better than an experience in watching situation comedies on TV. Okay. <laughs> Um, bear market is an arbitrary label with real consequences. That was the title of a, another article that you wrote in December of 2018. Oh, yeah. It's journalism. You know, I'm mm -hmm. not a, a journalism professor, but they, they, they attach attention to certain things. Nobody knows for sure where the term bear market came from. Uh, it was sometime in the 19th century. It was somebody's creative writing at some unimportant moment in history, and it just got contagious. Right. Then uh, sometime in the, uh, oh, when was it? 1980s or 90s. Right. It was in the mid-1980s, according to your article, that, that we defined a correction and defined a bear market. Uh, specifically, 20% decline for a bear market, 10% decline for a correction. Right, right. So that's recent. It's recent. I thought it might have something to do with uh, the popularity of it uh, with the 1987 crash where the market went down, the S&P went down just over 20% mm -hmm. in one day. So that sounds like a good round number to define a bear market. 
But again, it's completely arbitrary. It doesn't mean wh when you've reached that 20% right. that, that, you know, that therefore it's going to go down another 20%. It doesn't mean it's going to go. It's just journalism. Yeah. Right. So and, don't uh, put much stock in this description. So in, I think it was uh, December of 2018, we had a drop in the uh, Dow that was just under 20%. And that was received by many people as, whew, we are not in a bear market. Because it only went down, what was it, 19%? Yes, 19.8 <laughs> or something, right. So that's how it affects your thinking. And those things matter, actually. Mm -hmm. Stock market is in many ways a social psychological barometer. Again, this is a quote from an article uh, that you wrote and that very volatile emotions are involved. Are there any signs of irrational exuberance or in, in the markets today? What are you seeing? These are impressions. Yes. And I have impressions from or interacting with ordinary people. I'd like to make it more scientific by doing focus groups regularly and, and keeping a time series of them on important reasons that people have in their minds drawing them out. Well, I haven't done that. My book, Narrative Economics, ends with a research proposal that will take decades to fulfill of collecting data more directly mm -hmm. on what people are thinking. But my impression is that we had a really strong bull market in late 1990s, peaking in 2000. Right. And that uh, I could see it all around me. There was just excitement. People loved to talk about the market. I, I, I've seen other... Uh, stories in history about 1929 before the crash, for example. Everybody's talking about the market. Right. In 1929, women were getting into the market. In fact, that's all the women wanted to talk about. <laughs> they could make more money than their husband did working. This is 1929 uh -huh, talk. I'm uh -huh. and, and so I saw that kind of talk in 1999, and it led me to write my book then, Irrational Exuberance. Right. It just seemed like something... Was amiss or yeah, something. Yeah, something is amiss. Mm. Anything amiss now? Something's amiss because of the polarization we have right. uh, around uh, President Trump. And it's puzzling that the stock market has been doing quite well, setting new records, even in real terms. And I, I'm trying to understand. I don't know that I can do it without better uh, data. We'll have to wait until the next such stock market event in 20 years. If we've collected data, we can understand it better. But I, I think in the United States, it has something to do with make America great again mm -hmm. talk. Now, by the way, which, that, which resonated with Reagan and it worked yeah, it with was. Reagan. It, it worked did. with And so our president this time is very aware. He's a genius at understanding narratives. So he saw the potential of the MAGA narrative again. Mm -hmm. uh, these slogans matter, you know, and that was got, it got Reagan elected. It can get other people uh, elected. But it's, uh, again, there's, there's counter-narratives that offset it, so I'm having a little trouble summing it all up. But for many people, it's okay to be ostentatious. And uh, also, the government is behind rich people, and I'm going to be rich too, so I might as well live that's a the life. That's a narrative you're describing. Yeah, right. it is a narrative. Mm -hmm. There's also a lot of admiration for entrepreneurs now, like uh, Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. Now, he wasn't particularly living a flamboyant life. But Isaacson's book about Steve yes. Jobs was a huge bestseller. So people like that kind of story. And I think it justifies throwing caution to the winds, to the people in that category, not to everybody, mm -hmm. throwing caution to the winds, investing in something uh, that might be a little risky. 
the flip side of that is that there is now a a movement afoot, a political movement um, that, that's very anti-capitalist. And there yeah. have been recent surveys of millennials, for instance. The majority of millennials now view uh, capitalism negatively and view socialism positively. And the Business Roundtable just came out with a new statement of corporate purpose, which was emphasizing other stakeholders other than shareholders. I mean, of, of the 10 stakeholders yeah. that they mentioned, um, you know, the shareholders came last versus maximizing profits that you're the primary responsibility yeah. of a corporation, according to, you know, Milton Friedman was basically in, enriched the stockholders. They are the owners of the company. But, but he thought it would help everybody anyway. Yes. No, no, exactly. Like so th that's a big change to counter the, the narrative that uh, what you're describing about Trump. There's another narrative going on. Right, right. Do, do you see that having economic consequences? Right. Yeah, anti-capitalism. Uh, I, I still think there's respect for capital. Like Steve Jobs was a capitalist, right? right? And there's ad deep admiration for people like him. But Mark Zuckerberg, for instance, I mean, some of the tech titans, uh, they're very controversial. Big, very successful tech companies are coming under uh, increasing scrutiny. I think that when, when you ask people today to talk, millennials, about capitalism versus socialism. Yes, you have to ask, what do they mean by socialism? Is that Bernie Sanders? It's Elizabeth Warren. Or Elizabeth Warren. Uh, if you look at their proposals, there is not anything about nationalizing businesses. That, this, that used to be the definition yes. of socialism. The government owned right. the means of production. Right. So, so they're, they're not socialists in the true sense of the word. So they, they they sound a little bit more like Franklin Delano Roosevelt people rather than Karl Marx. <laughs> you don't see that as this kind of anti-capitalism that we're seeing in this country that is being expressed in terms of socialism versus capitalism as a, a, a kind of a narrative that is that has necessarily has legs or that's going to have economic consequences. Rather than socialism, I like the term good society. Mm -hmm. That was the title of a book written by Walter Lippmann in, in the Roosevelt era. Right. Uh, and the good society is still private businesses, and it rewards initiative and responsibility. But it's more than that. It's uh, a concern. So Louis Uchitel uh, wrote a book recently. He's a writer for the New York Times. Yes. Uh, about where he interviewed managers of companies in the United States. And he found that the older ones, who were managers 30 years ago, uh, seemed to have more heartfelt concern about their workers uh, than, than modern ones. Modern ones will, t will, will give a Regan-style <laughs> uh, definition of, I've got to do this because it, it's, it's what makes profits. Mm -hmm. So there, it, there has been a narrative that has shifted away from an all-American narrative about Oh, I, talking about all-American narratives, there, there used to be uh, stories going back to the 19th century that emphasized the benefits of capitalism, but tended to describe people as uh, caring. J.P. Morgan was a hero mm -hmm. because in the Panic of 1907, he assembled the bankers who were all had no obligation to solve this crisis right. and got them to support the market to prevent a further rout. Uh, and he, he was a national hero. So maybe we're going back to some of the basics of what it meant to be a corporate leader or a business leader 
was prevalent many years ago, which would probably be a very positive thing. I think it is very positive if business people have a sense of mission. How do you use these narratives? How do you apply them as an investor, for instance? Well, I don't apply them all the time because I think that we could have a more of a science of narratives. Uh, but I think that uh, and it's hard to do that. We can do it better now because of digitized data. Mm -hmm. You can search. That's what I've been doing, searching newspapers and books and other written items. But we can't do it perfectly. But there are times when you get a feeling. <laughs> I think it can make a difference, uh, an, an informed feeling right. uh, about some investment that, you know, this this is something's crazy here, and uh, you want to get out of the, get out of that investment. <laughs> well, I remember you getting your wife telling you to get out of the stock market before the financial crisis or something wasn't oh, yeah. it in two thousand and seven or two thousand and eight. You had written about the housing boom and yeah. and clearly something was amiss. I didn't as you get said. out completely, but I but I remember she encouraged you. Let's sell stock. Well, I was it, talking to her about how much enthusiasm I hear. We were eating out. Right. And I said, I'm going to listen for stock market or housing market. I don't listen in other conversations, but I have an ability to hear those words at an adjacent table. And it works. I always <laughs> do. At those times. I don't hear it right now. Right. It just doesn't feel the same. Or taxi drivers. You don't right. even need, back then, you didn't even need to stimulate them. They would talk about housing market or stock market. <laughs> More of the housing market amongst a taxi drivers. I'm not sure why. Let me ask about what you're personally investing in. It was my wife and I. Mm -hmm. uh, we tend to be diversified and uh, diversified across asset classes. So according to your, your CAPE um, ratio, for instance, is, are there any asset classes that look particularly in the CAPE ratio is the cyclically adjusted PE ratio which is yeah. the average inflation-adjusted earnings for uh, for 10 years for the S&P 500. Are there any CAPE ratios that look particularly undervalued right now? Well, there are some who are extremely undervalued, mm -hmm. like Russia. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure I would advise that. <laughs> Maybe a little bit in your portfolio. <laughs> but uh, because of political instability, right? Uh, there, there might be a reason why they're, they're the lowest CAPE ratio. But I'm thinking that Europe, most people underinvest in Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, they have a great history. Their CAPE ratio is much lower. What about our mother country, UK? Mm -hmm. No one calls it the mother country. I know. That's where our language comes from. Yes, it does. And also our legal system. And, and their, their stocks are much cheaper. So uh, the, the, the question, uh, the one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, you, you wanted to go in a different direction. Well, I was us. thinking that I, if I'm going to say something useful, it's from my observation of young people. Uh, and I think that uh, the, the, the most important investment for them is in human capital. And I'm, I'm thinking, I, I give advice freely to all my students, that I think young people today underestimate, or, or older people as well, uh, they underestimate the value of a real education as opposed to a diploma. And uh, a What's lot the of, difference? The, the diploma is something you put on your vita, and you hope that they will notice that you graduated from a hopefully good institution. Mm -hmm. that, that isn't entirely misplaced, but I think they underestimate trying to remember uh, things that they learned. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so a real education, what you really learned, is that what you're saying or investing yeah, so when in you that? Study a, uh, yeah, well, you study a language in college, 
you should make a habit of reading material in that language. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you just lose it completely if you don't. And uh, also, you know, I, I think people should take courses outside of the strict uh, optimizing course selection. Take a history course or a psychology course, even if that's not your major. They try to force you to do that with distribution requirements in mm -hmm. universities. But I think that they should, young people should embrace that because uh, it's, that's, that is your key ability that will prevent you from falling behind in the future of robots and digitization. What, I think the last thing that computers will learn to do is to exercise good judgment in a historical and psychological context. For those of us who are not young people, instead who are but students I still think of life, it's continuing I, education is still. I mean, are are you continuously um, educating yourself? I think that if I have, if I'm a success, that's my success story. I read articles that I think I want to know and remember, and I try to remember them. And it, it's a matter of avoid the Donald Trump tweet story today. <laughs> it could be good or it could be bad, but that's not be over-influenced by something that's obviously, uh, a, a narrative that's obviously grown out of proportion. Robert Schiller, so great to have you on Wealth Track. Thank you so much for joining us. It was fun for me, too. And congratulations on your new book, Narrative Economics. Thank you. Thank you. For more information about Nobel laureate economist Robert Schiller, his new book, Narrative Economics, and other Wealth Track conversations with him, go to wealthtrack.com. On the next Wealth Track, Morningstar's personal finance guru Christine Benz will join us with a financial to-do list for 2020 to make the year count. Thanks for joining us and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one. <music>